0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I want to introduce to you one of my favorite websites from 2019. In fact, I think it was probably my favorite website for about the past two years, is humanprogress.org. And no person better to talk about human progress and humanprogress.org than Marion Tupi. Marion Tupi is the editor of humanprogress.org and senior policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He specializes in globalization and global well-being and the political economy of Europe and sub-Saharan Africa. Marion, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you
0: for having me. Uh, A couple years ago, I was asked in a small group, uh, it was actually in a family group, and we were kind of brainstorming some of our passions and like, what would be a message that we would want the world to know? And everybody went around the table and said theirs. And mine was that people don't realize that the world is getting better by leaps and bounds and dang it, they need to know about it. (laughs) And I don't think two years or so prior to that, I would have even known this. And thanks to websites like humanprogress.org, I actually know this. And it's like really, really encouraging. You know, we're recording this right at the beginning of 2020. We're looking into a new decade. People are looking back toward the last decade. You know, when you look at the data, we, we look back the last couple hundred years and we see the hockey stick graph that I think most libertarians are pretty familiar with. And, you know, there are a lot of people that are seemingly unaware that our world is just Pretty amazing around us, and I uh, don't want to get your take on why do you think that is, and then you know what's the solution to to doing that? And how p- human progress came to be.
1: Well, human progress came to be in 2013 or so, when there was a happy confluence of a few things. One was that big data became more readily available. A lot of organizations whom we rely on for data open their databases for ordinary people. Uh, ordinary people could, could get access to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, also graphics uh, and um, computing and internet uh, became much more widespread, much better. And so it was possible for the first time, really, to start visualizing big data. And we weren't the only wants to do that, but at the same time, you had people like Hans Rosling and also Max Roser at Oxford basically doing the same thing. So obviously, a lot of people were thinking about uh, doing the same thing, and that came to fruition in early 2013 or so, maybe 2012. And um, the reason why I thought it was worthwhile to do that is uh, very simple. I grew up under socialism, I didn't like the experience, and um, I assumed that following the end of the Cold War and the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, socialism as an idea was over. However, in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, a lot of people started to talk about the end of capitalism Started to talk about the need for not just different economic arrangements, but uh, also different political arrangements, you know, maybe go the way of China and things like that. And so I thought, well, capitalism has its problems, so does democracy, but on average, these two institutions have accomplished a lot of good. And I reasoned that if more people understand that. Actually, they live at a very positive time. If they understand the blessings of economic and political freedoms, they may be more inclined to defend them rather than abandon them. So in other words, to sum up, this is an attempt to show people around the world that the world is much better than they think it is, that the improvements which... The world has experienced are at least in large part due to economic and political freedoms and that those freedoms are worth defending.
0: Where did You said that the big data became more readily available. You know, I'm going to ask you, where's this data coming from? Because I had this interaction on Facebook with some progressives and I posted something from humanprogress.org. And of course, they looked up that the Cato Institute was basically funding or running humanprogress.org. It was connected there. And of course, they associated this with evil billionaire funding. And they're like, well, I don't trust their data. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I'm, I, I'm I had a pretty easy response, but yeah. t- where's, the, uh, where's the data coming from?
1: Right. So the first and most important thing is that uh, we don't create any data whatsoever. Human progress does not. I repeat, does not produce its own data. We are a website which uh, conglomerates data from third parties. All of this is, of course, written up on our About page. And the institutions that we go to for data are varied, but they are the gold standard in the area of data collection. So the most important one of which is the World Bank, the IMF, Eurostat, which is the European Data Collections uh, Authority. We have uh, a lot of data from OECD, the Organization for Cooperation and Economic Development. We have data from academics, individual academics, associated obviously only with the best universities, such as the Harvard University and so forth, uh, maybe Berkeley and of course, every single data set has an information button, which when you click, it will tell you exactly mm-hmm. where it is from.
0: And So people can fact check you then, with yeah. if they're yes. students of, uh, of data. I, I'm not able to do that personally. I mean, I can look at certain charts and stuff and get get a sense of things, but I, I'm not a student of analytics in that way. But uh, so people can... Fact check you and and say hey you're reading this wrong and,
1: and oh yeah I mean obviously um, yeah and 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 just to just to reiterate everything that we do is clearly described on our about page our funders are there you know this is not some sort of a uh, clandestine operation which we run uh, if it were <laughs> uh, we wouldn't put in writing and very explicitly who funds us what we are trying to achieve. And also all of our sources are, I I think there are up to 200 sources by now, all of them are written up on the above page. Um, Maybe I should just include that a lot of our data comes from government agencies. Now, it's kind of ironic that progressives who are so keen on government and who believe that government data can be used to minutely reorganize the Western society are at the same time pessimistic about the very data that we use which comes from government agencies, but never mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I was kind of aghast at that person who challenged the data. I'm like, this isn't this isn't data from some right wing source, you know, because you know, some there are people out there who post, you know, places like that. I mean, your your operation is very transparent and open about its goals. And it also is for a reason. I mean, you mentioned um is it Roser and Hans Rosling Their websites don't actually have the sort of, I don't want to use the word agenda because that sounds worse, but doesn't have the sort of stated purpose of promoting individual freedom and democratic freedom.
1: Yeah, uh, a part of the reason, of course, why we started was connected to what Hans Rosling did. Now, Hans Rosling was a very great man unfortunately, deceased now. And he worked at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, I believe, uh, or was in Copenhagen. I can't remember quite exactly. But but anyway, he did a lot of good in uh, showing the world how things were getting better. But one frustration which I had was, when I was watching his videos, was that you know, all of the good things that he was describing, the, the growth in GDP, the decline in infant mortality, maternal mortality, increases in life expectancy, he never in any way explained why he thought those things were happening. In other words, those things sort of jumped at you like a rabbit out mm-hmm. of a out of a hat. Now there is nothing wrong with simply providing pure data. A lot of people do that. But I do think there is some scope for contextualization there is some scope for explaining why for example is life expectancy much higher in south korea than in north korea why the people of chile are relatively rich and the people in cuba are relatively poor it needs to be contextualized so that lessons necessary lessons can be drawn and the lesson which I think jumps out at you is that the freest societies tend to be also the best societies to live in, which is why people from around the world are trying to make their way into free societies rather than the other way around.
0: Do you know of any websites that sort of dedicate themselves to telling people why the freedom interpretation, like sort of the libertarian interpretation of this data is wrongheaded or, or anything like that?
1: I'm not sure about the websites. Um, Here's the thing. The data really speaks for itself. There is no alternative data. Nobody has an alternative data showing that life expectancy, for example, is declining or that child mortality is increasing. Data like that doesn't exist. And so what tends to happen instead is that people sort of just say that our data cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. um but uh, to my knowledge nobody out there that i know of is using the data that we do in order to make a case for socialism in other words nobody is using the data on child mortality or educational healthcare to show that socialism works instead what they seem to be doing is to say that all of this data is created by i don't know some nefarious dark forces Um, and therefore uh, cannot be trusted. But, you know, just pass the smell test, for goodness sake. Look at China in 1978 and look at it today. Uh, Talk to people in China who are old enough to remember the 70s or the 60s, and Mm -hmm. they will tell you that life is very different indeed. So, yes, there is no alternative data, but people who don't believe in the freedom concept uh, tend to attack the data itself and say that uh, you know the points that we are making cannot be proven. So
0: I guess that then brings up the question there is data about a lot of things and your website is not going to post a new article tomorrow on how poverty has increased in a particular pocket of the globe. Uh, it's not the purpose of your website. So Clearly, because of that, you're in some sense cherry-picking what you choose to report, but you're very clear about that. I mean, it's, uh, people know this. You're not just picking stuff. I mean, that could be one critique that people would have. is like, oh, well, they're just focusing on all the good things, and, and furthermore, they're focusing on all the things that make libertarian philosophy or people who are into more free countries want to promote. Like, it's an ideological bent, which you kind of are open about, but at the same time, it's like, well, you're just picking the data that show what you want it to show. Not that you're wrong, but like there's a whole lot of bad things also that you forget, would be mm. a critique, I can imagine.
1: Yeah, um, I, I would give it a two pronged answer. Firstly, it is true that we don't dwell on the negative stuff. And the reason for that is very simple every other outfit in the world, pretty much, uh, focuses on the bad, bad stuff. So to do that, would be incredibly time-consuming. And, and I think that people have access to all the bad news 24-7 just by opening the uh, the newspaper <laughs> or watching, watching television. So th- that's not obviously what we want mm-hmm. to do. We want to put things in, into perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, the second thing to say about this is that we don't hide the imperfections and shortcomings that are taking place in the world today. Let's take something important and well known, such as life expectancy. If you look at a data set on life expectancy, which uh, we take from the World Bank, but you can get it from many other sources, you realize that on average, the life expectancy around the world has improved tremendously. Between, uh, you know, in 1900, people in the richest countries in the world lived to 50. Today, global average, is 70, and in the richest countries, it's 80. So the global average is obviously improving. However, if you look at life expectancy in the United States, it has actually been declining over the last three years due to the deaths of despair, opioid crisis, uh, that sort of thing. So we acknowledge that. In fact, in a newsletter which I sent out on the 31st of December, I spent a lot of time talking about the deaths of despair and uh, decreasing life expectancy in the United States. And, but that doesn't change the fact that in a vast majority of countries, every year, life expectancy is longer than it was the year before. And there is no reason to expect that the trend which we are seeing in the United States will carry on indefinitely. In other words, at some point, I believe that we are going to return back to the path of increased life expectancy. Mm -hmm. So that's just an example of one data set where not everything is going in the right direction. I mean, in, in general, on average, things are going in the right direction. People live longer around the world, just not in the United States. Now, that being said, there are many other things in which lives of the American people are improving. But finally, it is very, very important to keep in mind the following. If everything was improving for everyone, everywhere, at all times, that would be a miracle, as Steven Pinker from Harvard says. That would not be progress. Progress doesn't imply that there aren't temporary setbacks or that in some countries there won't be two steps back, one step forward, that sort of thing. Bad things do happen. Progress, there is nothing inevitable about it. It doesn't happen everywhere to the same extent. But on average, life today is better than what it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, it was better than what it was the 10 years before that. So in that sense, we feel very comfortable in promoting the idea of human progress. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, in Factfulness, Hans Rosling kind of reiterated over and over, you know, just because we're telling you things are getting better doesn't mean they're where we want them to be or that they
1: are you know, good. That's another point, obviously, is that every one of these indicators of human well-being could be improved on. We are not suggesting for a second that uh, we live in a perfect world. Unlike progressives, we don't look at the present from the perspective of an imaginary future utopia. We look at progress from the perspective of an awful history of our human species. We compare present to the past, not to the future.
0: What about the statistics that are, you know, I read an article. Uh, in Huffington Post, this was about a week or so ago, and it talked about the poverty rate in certain counties and areas in the United States. And they talk about the, you know, that gets pretty granular once you get to the county level. I mean, I know you're dealing with like global rates and things like that, but how do we account for the assessment of like, you know, they were talking about, I think it was like 83 counties in Texas, the poverty rate actually increased Whereas, yes, you know, they kind of admitted at the beginning of the article, the poverty rate overall in the U.S. has gone down by a percentage or two in the past couple of years. But there are a handful of pockets in the country that are that are getting worse.
1: Right. Um, so, and so yeah.
0: how granular does your data get? And do you have any thoughts on on those things?
1: I do have thoughts on that, although our data is not granular, it's human progress, which means that we look at the world and we look at the data from the perspective of nation states. So we compare life expectancy in the United States with life expectancy in France, Germany, Chile, Cuba, whatever. Uh, We don't go at a subnational level. But I am, of course, uh, aware of the uh, conversations about subnational level. So the first thing to realize is that it's very, very important to distinguish between absolute poverty and relative poverty. Absolute poverty is basically whether you look at it from $2 per day standpoint, per person per day standpoint, or $4 or $5 per person per day standpoint, absolute poverty is basically people who live on the edge of starvation. And that has declined from about 95% of humanity in 1800s to about 8% today. Or to make it a little more tangible to your listeners, Uh, At a time when President Reagan became president, 44% of human beings lived in absolute poverty on the edge of starvation. Today, only 8% of humanity lives on the edge of starvation. So that's absolute poverty. But of course, because we are a very rich country, We don't have a problem with absolute poverty. Nobody in America lives on $2 per person per day. Instead, what we are looking at is relative poverty, which is uh, some percentage of whatever is the average standard of living in the United States. I don't know the precise figure. Now, there is a lot of dispute over relative poverty in America for the following reason. If you look at the government figures, which are based on income of our fellow Americans, then relative poverty declined from about 16 to about 12% in the early 1960s, but it remained in a band between 12% and 8% ever since. In other words, over the last 50 or 60 years, based on this government data, which is based on income, relative poverty has not budged. It moves between... 12% to 8%, depending on whether the country is going through economic booming times or economic busts. Now, we get a very different sense of American relative poverty levels when we look at consumption, not incomes, but consumption, not how much people make, but how much they consume. And if you look at consumption figures, relative poverty in America is around 3%. That's because people have a lot of money and a lot of income, which they don't uh, register. They often dip into their savings. They work uh, jobs which they don't declare and for which they don't pay taxes. And very often, they are between jobs. So they can they can spend even though they don't earn a lot of money. So based on consumption data, uh, relative poverty is down to about
0: 3%. So You know, I I think you partly explained that in in your explanation there. But why is consumption data an important factor in this in terms of identifying? Because I get, okay, I have people in my head who are leftists who are friends of mine. And I think about like, what would they be saying if they were listening right now and be like, wait a second. But why is that important? Like three percent, that just makes it so that people won't care about people who are poor because, you know, it's actually worse than you want to make it out to be. Um, or they yeah. would say things like the people that you just mentioned who are spending, are spending themselves into like debt poverty or or whatever.
1: They could be, they could be, but you also have a lot of people who are already wealthy. Let's say, uh, let's take somebody who maybe has made a hundred million dollars from the stock market. Mm-hmm. He or she have paid their taxes uh, and whatever they are left with is still on the order of, you know, tens of millions of dollars. But they don't work. They don't need to work. They don't have an income per se. They have made that money ten or twenty years ago, and they just live of the of the interest, uh, whatever they have, or you know, so people have a lot of money which does not come by way of annual income that is reported to the government. so that
0: oh, so you're saying that people who actually have a decent amount of money are counted in the poverty rate because they're actual, like, their income taxes based on traditional income, is is that what you're saying? Like that actually registers very low.
1: That would be well. I'm I'm not saying that that's why it registers so very low. I, I mean, oh, okay. I'm just I'm just explaining that's that's one type of person without income. Who oh, right. Consumes a lot of money. Now the the alternative would be citizens who say, for example, lost their job. Okay, let's 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 go back to 2008 and let's say that you have a person who was making $100,000 a year, and that person gets fired from the job because the country is experiencing a dramatic increase in unemployment due to economic crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, That person still has money. That person has money in savings. That person has money in investments. That person has money under the mattress. But because they don't have an income, they will register as people without income, (laughs) whereas in Mm. fact they still can rely on, they can still consume a lot uh, simply because of previous income which they have saved or invested. That's what I'm saying. Now, even people who are poor and who, who are genuinely poor, who don't have these investments, who don't have savings, who don't have money under the mattress, these people may still be earning money which they do not necessarily inform the government about, let's say that they do part-time jobs for ready cash or um, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, we are getting into the weeds of it, but the bottom line is that Americans consume much more than the income, the relative income levels would, would suggest. And part of it would be obviously people who are going to debt. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, I, it's okay that we got in the weeds there for a moment because I think it's really helpful. One one of the things that I've personally struggled with is discerning what data is important and how to interpret it. Like, you know, just the basic question: Why is you know why is consumption data versus uh, income data you know relevant to the discussion on who's actually poor and what what should we do about it and things like that? You know, I don't always know because this is not my not my purview, but I think that's fine that we got into the weeds there a little bit.
1: One more sentence on this, and, oh, sure. and, that that, and that is that even though we got into the nitty-gritty of it, it is still very important to understand that we are talking about a relative poverty. In other words, the people who are in relative poverty in America, whether they are, uh, whether we look at it from income data or consumption data, they are still at a much higher level of standard of living than people elsewhere in the world.
0: Yeah. So on that question, (laughs) I'll keep us here for a second longer, just because we talked about it is, you know, the critique, like, why do they care? I mean, they, they can't afford to pay their bills, they're having trouble eating. And someone like you or I come along, we're well fed. And we're saying yes, but you know, you have it better than the kings of 100 years ago, or 200 years ago, that doesn't really matter to them. And I've often, you know, somebody who deals with data like you, I'm, I've often wondered, like, why, why should that be the the response to, like, well, their lives aren't as bad as it could be or as it was if they had been born 200 years ago or 500 years ago. What do you think on on that sort of critique of our of I mean, I'm on your side here, but that's just that's no, just I, what I, I get I, when I'm talking. Yeah.
1: Well, part of the reason why conversations about standard of living of America's less fortunate citizens is so frustrating. Is because the criticism, very often you get criticized from two completely incompatible positions. So, for example, our progressive friends maintain that poor people don't have enough food and they are starving. On the other hand, they blame the poor for eating bad food and being obese so which one is it it's very difficult to sort of have a response when your opponent doesn't exactly know what they are talking about is the problem amongst american poor obesity which i think it is or is it starvation which i think it is not but again you, you know you 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 get into arguments like that and mm-hmm. that doesn't usually lead to a very good response now in terms of why should we care well because America is based on two very important institutional setups. One is a relatively free market, by no means free. Uh, We have plenty of regulations, we have plenty of laws, we have plenty of restrictions, protections, what have you, Uh, but it's relatively free. And the second is, of course, representative government, which is to say that we don't have a dictator uh, who is going to fix everything We have a democratically elected government. Now, why should people care? Well, because if there is an impression being created that life in America is bad, then uh, we might as well pack it in and uh, Mm. look for alternative social and economic arrangements. And then the question is really, would those alternative social arrangements create a better America or not? Now, nobody is suggesting for a second that America is a perfect place to live in. I certainly wouldn't make that claim. But on average, it's a pretty good place to live in compared to all the other countries. So figuring out what we do well and preserving that and then improving things where we fall short, mm-hmm. is, in my view, a much better way of securing prosperity for future generations than having some sort of a revolution. You know, there are very few revolutions that that work out in the way that revolutionaries had hoped those revolutions would work out. More often than not, following a revolution, you end up with less than what you had before. And surely we want to avoid that.
0: Yeah. So in preparation for this episode I was you know listening to other interviews that you've done and and so forth and I had this thought do you ever get tired of spreading this news because you know you've you've repeated a handful of the things that you know you've said to other people that are asking you and of course this is a different audience but I'm just like man you got to keep telling people this news over and over and over and I guess it's better than telling people bad news <laughs> over and over but I just want to get like your personal take on like you know, where Where are you, like, you, you got to keep telling people that they're wrong about the progress of the world. I guess that's a good thing. But what do you think?
1: Well, uh, it, it really is a pleasure most of the time, not always, but most of the time. Um, you know, when people have a distinct idea in mind, which happens to be wrong, that can be explained away. The problem is when people have Two different ideas in mind, which are both wrong, and you cannot convince them that they are incorrect. Such as, for example, the question of diet of poor Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's something where, where where one can go crazy because <laughs> because they're mutually incompatible, as I explained. But never mind. Um, the most of the time, it's a pleasure, and it's um, it's deeply rewarding because a lot of people get in touch with us and they thank us for changing their perspective on, on the world and making them happier. And that, of course, is very gratifying. Mm, um, yeah. But also it is a pleasure because, well, it's it's a pleasure, but also it's a duty, uh, as I see it, uh, because you know, I lived under a political and economic system which was very different from American. And I'm very grateful for the freedoms which I enjoy and uh, the good things that have resulted from those freedoms, not just for me, but my fellow citizens. I'm, I'm an American now. But the, um, I, I do it partly out of a sense of gratitude for being so lucky, but also partly out of fear that we may lose those freedoms. So on many levels, it is a, a very gratifying project to work on.
0: Yeah. So, what are some of your favorite? I mean, we, there's like there's like a whole sidebar on your site of all the different types of like categories of data and so forth. Or what are some of your personal favorites in terms of like how has the world gotten better?
1: Oh, we could talk about life expectancy. Obviously, very important because I enjoy living, and you know, if you are not alive, you can't enjoy anything else. So that's right. Right. Important. And obviously, uh, literacy, education are way up. Even in places where you wouldn't expect it, like in Africa, girls in Afghanistan can go to school now, things like that. So that's that's lovely. Uh, the fact that fewer and fewer parents have to bury their children, that's obviously very important. But mm. to me, I think the most important that that sort of puts everything in perspective, believe it or not, is, um, is diet, is our access to food. So I'll take you back. 300 years ago, when 90% of humanity were involved in uh, agriculture. And um, basically, in those days, before artificial fertilizer, before mechanization and so forth, people lived and died on farms, basically devoting their lives to backbreaking labor only producing enough calories to see the next day. So let's say that a typical human being needs, well, a, a a physically active human being, say needs, I don't know, women maybe two to two and a half thousand calories, men two and a half to three thousand calories, and um, that's just to ensure if you are very physically active that you can wake up the next day and perform the same job in the fields that you have done before, okay? So that's what I mean by people living on the edge of starvation. You have to work the entire day in order to create enough calories on your fields to see the next day. You are with me so far? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, now, if you walk into McDonald's, you can get... Two to three thousand calories for about six dollars. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but for about six dollars. Now, if you are a person working at a minimum wage, that's half an hour of work on minimum wage. In other words, you can buy and consume the same amount of calories that took our ancestors an entire day to produce for half an hour of labor on a minimum wage.
0: In air-conditioned conditions.
1: In, <laughs> and, and, and by the way, say what you will about McDonald's. I personally like it, but never mind. A lot of people sure. don't know. Say what you will about McDonald's. It is certainly a more varied and more tasty food than most of our ancestors had access to. Uh, yes, there were occasional feasts and things like that. But most of the time, our ancestors lived on potatoes and bread and uh, in Africa, maybe maize and things like that. But, uh, you know, that, that's, that's pretty much what, what life was like. Yeah. So, so that's a statistic which, which is absolutely mind-blowing in my, in my view.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you don't even have to pick a McDonald's. I mean, even for a handful of dollars more, you could pick a much healthier option and still make your point. And it's it's still incredibly affordable for a very small amount of work effort in much better conditions.
1: Yeah, a Whole Foods chicken, an entire chicken, I was at Whole Foods today, an entire chicken already uh, roasted is uh, what, it's about $9? Well, at Costco, they are 5 <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> and they've actually made this like commitment to keeping it at, I think it might be 5 or something. And they've like made this like company commitment to always keeping it at that price point. And they've made like capital investments to make sure that they're able to do that.
1: Yeah. And so that's again, that's again, less than an hour's worth of labor for, uh, uh, you know, on a minimum wage. So that's, uh, that's still remarkable.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's really. It is remarkable. I, I am totally in agreement and I, I think about these things often when I'm at places like Costco one or, way, uh, or whatever. One
1: other thing, one other thing which is a, a staggering, staggering statistic. Americans today, on average, again, on average, spend more food in restaurants than they spend at home. Now, that is a staggering statistic because, well, one of the first things you do if you are poor or or if you are not well off or if you're if your standard of living falls, is to cut out the restaurant meals, right? Because you eat at a restaurant for much more money than you could recreate that dish at home. Yet Americans spend more money now on meals in restaurants than they they spend on grocery shopping at home. That shows you the level of prosperity.
0: Are there any statistics that you tend to bring up more frequently with your progressive friends? I mean, they tend to be the most pessimistic about the world in
1: my view progressives hate progress <laughs> that's yes uh, well, yeah they hate because it is created uh under conditions they disapprove of and so one of the things that i've realized long time ago living in dc which is a very very progressive city is that Progressives generally do deny progress. They refuse to look at the statistics out of an ideological commitment to seeing the world in a much worse shape than it is because they cannot reconcile the notion that people should, in general, on average, prosper under what they consider to be a, uh, an immoral system so th- that is a very important thing that i found out in my in my 16 or 17 years in dc now in terms of um, what are my favorite statistics to bring up with uh, progressives um i think that one of the things that i sort of try to point out is that it's not only people in the western world who are getting generally better off but even people in places that you, we don't normally associate With human progress, such as, for example, Africa, Latin America, and so forth. If you look at um, incomes in uh, developed countries and developing countries, what you see is that the gap between the richest countries and the poorest countries continues to expand. But that's not true of gaps in other aspects of human progress, such as life expectancy, education, literacy, uh, child mortality, and so forth. The gap between poorest countries and the richest countries, continues to shrink because these people in less developed parts of the world now have access to a lot of knowledge, to a lot of technologies and knowledge and information that enables them to close the gap with us, the fortunate people, even though their incomes are still relatively low. So I think that's that's one thing that I try to impress on uh, my progressive friends is that actually the world is getting less unequal when it comes to different indicators of human progress.
0: So before we wrap up, what is your what is your most uh, like what are you optimistic about for the next decade?
1: Well, unless. We put an end to this experiment in prosperity and we can talk about that more. I think what I'm hopeful for are tremendous advances in medical science. I think that with CRISPR-Cas9, which is the uh, gene editing technology, we are very likely to eliminate a number of diseases which are caused by single gene mutations Uh, such as Huntington's, for example, but many others. I think that we'll be able to use this technology also to go after viruses and uh, superbugs. So I think that uh, there there are going to be a great degree, a great deal of advances in medical technology. I think we are also going to be much better at diagnosing uh, illnesses and treating them. I, I think there are some fascinating things happening in terms of treatment of cancer so that would be one thing that I'm very optimistic about. I think that um, we are going to be a much healthier species at the end of next decade than we are now.
0: Marianne, thanks for joining us for this episode. I really, really want every one of our listeners to go to humanprogress.org and just soak in all of the articles and data and share it widely because it is truly—you can just get lost in it and be like, "Oh my goodness, the world is the world's better than I, you know, that I'm being told." And, uh, you know, again, it's not one of those things where you can be like, oh, well, the world's good. I don't have to be concerned about anything. But uh, I I really appreciate you coming on and and giving us an insight into what you do.
1: Uh, And I'm grateful for having the opportunity to talk to you. And uh, for those of your readers who don't have a lot of time to read through the articles, please follow us on Twitter, where you will get um, all of our thoughts and all of our data summarized uh, in uh, under 240 characters.
0: Yeah, so what's the what's the Twitter account they can find you?
1: Oh, it's just the Human Progress. Human Progress. Great. Thank you very much. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com.